The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Testament epistle called First Peter. We got uh, only a very small way, and we'll progress only a small way further today as I read once again the same text, but I'm concentrating really on only verse 2, believe it or not, of this passage as we move along. In fact, I think I'll just read the first two verses. This is God's Word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We ask the Lord to bless his word and make it clear our minds and hearts. Well, last week we Americans did it again. We exercised the great privilege of a democratic society, a bloodless change of power. A presidential election happening every four years shows us that every ordinary citizen of this country actually wields enormous power because our one personal vote directly influences who becomes the most influential leader on the planet. That's pretty amazing. But contrary to the belief of some people, while we have that power to elect a president, we never elect a divine Savior. Instead, the Bible tells the truth that some vehemently reject that God elects us. We may choose political leaders to rule on the basis of a track record they have to offer, but God chooses men and women to redeem based on our having no track record that would support his voting for us. Jesus told disciples in John 15, you didn't choose me. I chose you out of this world. And Scripture repeatedly teaches that God does mysteriously draw from every tribe and people on the earth his chosen people. Some think that applied only to Old Testament Israel, but if you read Scripture properly, you see that it applies to the broad people of God whom he chooses from all nations and all times as Scripture goes forward people whom he decided would be incorporated into his forever family. And so words start to collect in the Bible like elect here in our passage, or the word election, predestination, words that to some are fighting words, 
offensive words. Gnashing of teeth happens over these words as people say, that can't be. And yet, the Scripture clearly says that's the way it is, according to the teaching of the Holy Spirit in God's Word. Now, I'm inching slowly into this text. I told you that last time. And certainly, if I stayed at this kind of a pace, we'd be on First Peter way beyond my retirement. So, uh, I promise you, we will move faster. But there is a truth that, especially in verse 2, that I really didn't put much emphasis on last time as I introduced this, and I feel we had to come back to and and just concentrate on what is said at the opening, at the outset of this letter, as Peter speaks to elect exiles. I would point out that our translation that I read from, our, that is what many of you use here in our church, the English Standard Version does not insert the actual word chosen, but the word is understood. If you're reading the sentence structure, it says, to those elect exiles, and then lists places, and then he's keying off the word elect. They are elect according to. The New International Version, for example, inserts so that you don't have to mentally insert it, the word chosen according to. But certainly God's choice, God's election, is the key that is in view here in this verse 2. Now, this is something we know from other places in the Scripture. Paul speaks about this a great deal in different kinds of terminology. Ephesians 1.4 is certainly a classic place. The whole first chapter of Ephesians has the doctrine of divine election. We read there, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Or you might go to Romans 8.29, which figured into that hymn we just sang a few minutes ago. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and those he predestined, he calls and justifies and glorifies. This is a wide teaching and a teaching with many difficulties involved in it, many things that cause people to scratch their heads. The late Reverend Jim Kennedy from Florida wrote about it once, and he said this, people are opposed to the doctrine of God's choice or election because they will have God to be anything but God. He can be their cosmic psychiatrist, a friendly helper, a kindly leader or teacher. He can be anything he wants except God, according to these people, God, the sovereign director of the universe. And the reason is, these folks want to be God themselves. Well, that's really true when it comes down to the final analysis. In the second verse of this letter, Peter is summing up salvation as an act that begins in the mind and in the working of the triune God. And you'll notice that God the Father, God the Spirit, and Christ the Son are all named as active agents in verse 2 in the bringing of that salvation. Our ESV text keys off of that word elect in the first verse, picking up with three prepositional clauses, if you want to be grammarians about it. Elect how? One, according to the foreknowledge of God, two, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and three, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, preachers don't get three points presented to them any more clearly than that as we look today just at this one 
rather fascinating verse. Last time, more emphasis was put on the fact that Peter was writing to exiles. Indeed, elect, elect exiles, chosen exiles, but exiles was the main uh, thing that I, I brought, tried to bring out. The idea that these are people scattered, God's people scattered among the Roman Empire, among the culture and the citizenship of the Roman Empire, people who don't fit, people who feel like they're aliens, like they have to live by principles and according to expectations that are not God's expectations. And nevertheless, they are God's chosen people as these scattered exiles. There's a definite tension here. On the one hand, that's what you are, scattered in this world. And there's a certain obedience to the world culture expected of you and a certain putting up with and living with and hopefully influencing that culture even while it resists you. But at the same time, you're asked to know that you are God's chosen vessel. And that's the greater emphasis I would bring to you today as we look for the second time at this very brief text. 1 Peter 1-2, on this emphasis that we are God's elect or chosen ones. First of all then, and by the way, the first point is longer than the other two combined, just in case you get nervous along the way. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This begs the question, how well do you and I know the future? Hunches and guesses are often the best we can muster. I don't pretend to be a prophet and don't ever claim to be one, and yet my wife and a few others that I spoke to on Tuesday morning as we began Election Day will tell you that I said I think a lot of people are going to be surprised today. There were things that let you make the hunches and the guesses, and I certainly didn't claim any foreknowledge, but the guesses turned out to be right. We might be given a gift somehow. Let's say I could have the gift of 75% of the time being able to predict how elections would come out or, or various events would turn out. Boy, If I had even 75% accuracy, I would be a stupid person if I didn't clean up in the stock market. I'd lose 25% of the time, but I'd win 75%, and the wealth would accumulate, I would think. But we asked the question, was God surprised on Tuesday in our country? Of course not. Not in the slightest way. The eternal God has knowledge of what is going to happen that is perfect, impeccable, infallible. We say he is omniscient, knowing all things, and not just slightly knowing them, and not just making good guesses, completely knowing them. If there was a single little gap of uncertainty in the knowledge of God in any possible way, he would not be God. He would fail the God test if his knowledge is not complete of the future. So we're not saying that God is simply smart. There are smart people who have photographic memories. They can read a complex textbook and and reproduce all the fine details of it. That's great if you can learn like that. We don't even say that God learns. For he doesn't acquire knowledge. He originates it. All knowledge begins from him. He knows 
things in advance, and he knows them perfectly. In fact, they must come to pass if his perfect mind has known them beforehand. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, the prophet speaking for God says, I am God. There's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, and I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Nobody else can say that. Is that the God you worship? A God of perfect knowledge and perfect determination of things before time. Now, in 1 Peter 1-2, the Greek word that uh, comes out being translated as foreknowledge is an interesting word. It's a word that gives us the English word prognosis. You probably have some idea what a prognosis is. You've obtained one from a physician at some time as you've gone to him with an illness or a problem, and maybe he has applied all the best instruments and skills that he has with a CAT scan and an MRI and all kinds of tests to analyze your DNA and do I don't know what, a lot of other initials thrown in. But after he adds up all his high-tech diagnosis, he says, I predict that this is what's going to happen, or here's what I think is the best thing we can say. And any honest physician will tell you that even with the best tools they have, sometimes they're making an educated guess and a little better than that. They can't say, oh, I now know absolutely how this tumor will turn out and and absolutely whether this chemo or something else can solve it or, or take it away. They don't know absolutely. They know a very best guess, often very good, of course, with modern medical standards. But God's prognosis about your future salvation, you see, isn't an educated guess. It isn't, I will set in motion some things in history involving my son going to a cross to pay a penalty, and then I hope that by the laws of averages there will certainly turn out to be some people who may respond to that. I hope there will be. No, that is certainly not the picture the Bible presents. God has knowledge before the fact of those to whom the salvation of Christ will apply. He knows the decisions that will take place in the human mind. He knows the motives behind those decisions. He knows all the supportive evidence that will be summarized, the vacillation of the individual between belief or unbelief, and exactly what will turn out to be. You and I give what we call a testimony, and we say, well, here's how I decided. I decided to follow Jesus Christ, to believe in Him, that He was indeed the Son of God sent into history to die in my place and pay the penalty of my sins. I decided, I'm glad to say I decided for Christ. Well, that's not a wrong thing to say, but understand you're speaking from your merely human perspective. And you must take into account the other dimension of that something like Philippians 2.13 says, that it is God. After you have worked out your salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who works in you both to will it and to do it. It is not all about you. And when you realize it's not all about you, you begin to enter into a realm of of being greatly humbled by what God is doing in the long perspective of human history. 
Romans 8, 29 says, Whom God did foreknow, he also did predestinate. People say, I'm okay with the first word, foreknow. Sure, uh, he can know what I do before I do it. I don't know that I like that second word because that seems to sort of put it in concrete that it's going to happen whether I want it or not. And many try to say, no, I just can't buy that. I really chose Christ. God only knew what I would do before I did it. You really can't get away with that in the Scripture. You're just, you're selling the Scripture short when you talk that way. If God has foreknowledge that is perfect, that is complete, that is absolute, that cannot fail, then that means what he knows will happen is certain to happen. And so saying that it is predestinated is not a difficult stretch at all. What God foreknows, he foreordains. He knows the future in an infallible way. I give you an illustration that's so down to earth it's almost silly, but maybe it'll help because it is very practical and at a low level. Let's imagine God as a TV weatherman. There's a a realm of prediction that we're always, you know, paying attention to. Is it going to snow? Is it going to rain? Will it be sunny? Let's say we, we listen, and let's project this one out about six weeks, but okay, it's December 31st, and God, the TV weatherman, says it is going to snow tonight. And now at 6 p.m. in the 6 p.m. news, I prognosticate that by 10.05 p.m. it will have snowed a sufficient amount that you could go and measure in the parking lot of Westminster Presbyterian Church on the level parking lot, and you will find that there will be snow 3.2 inches deep at 10.05 p.m. Now, you know no weatherman in the world is going to say that. But I would say, silly as this sounds, that if we were to have that prediction from the all-knowing God, that at 10.05 p.m. you went with your little ruler right out here in the driveway in the parking lot of Westminster Church, and you used your little ruler, the snow would be 3.2 inches deep. It would not be 2.9 inches. It would not be 3.7. It would not be 2 feet. It would be 3.2 inches because the all-knowing mind of the universe, the Creator, had predicted it, and He cannot fail to say it correctly. Now, you say, what a kind of a silly illustration that is, but take it and apply it to what Peter's talking about here, that we are elect of God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, our salvation in Christ, our belonging to Christ is a matter of choice by God. Before the foundation, it doesn't say before the foundation of the world here, but it relates perfectly to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 when he said that. God has chosen us, Peter is saying. Now, think of it. He's writing this to people who were exiles, who felt like we don't belong, we're aliens. The Roman world doesn't like us. It makes life hard for us. It excludes us from jobs and and advancement and, and even punishes us in painful ways or maybe puts us in jail or something and eventually kills us. And that's our status in the world. But according to God, we are chosen by Him according to the foreknowledge. You see the tension of the situation? In this world, you don't belong, and you're rejected. 
according to God, you are chosen and you are privileged in a way that no one can even explain the reason for it, and yet it admits you to the halls of the highest possible privilege in the universe. God has chosen you. And so no matter what's happening in your everyday circumstances here in the Roman Empire as you're rejected and as you're suffering, don't forget, you're in God's sovereign eternal plan. And this should be for you a source of amazing and immediate comfort and trust that God is working out. If he can save you eternally as he determined to do before time began, can he not bring you through this thing you're struggling with or this difficulty that's occurring here in Bithynia or Pontus or Galatia or Lancaster or some other place? You see? Instead of puzzling over divine election as if it was simply some kind of a cold mathematical or philosophical problem to be solved that the theologians have been battling about for all time, that's not the important thing about it. It is a source of humility, hope, wonderment, and joy for the people of God to know how marvelous is our privilege before God. His saving acts for us began in eternity past and are now being worked out by God's wise and loving plan. How reassuring is that? God's saving choice of a people in eternal election is not a theologian's problem. It is the loving act of a gracious God and heavenly Father enacted for those who from the foundation of the world he decided to rescue and awaken and forgive and justify and adopt and glorify. So our destiny is not in the hands of impersonal fate. It's not even in your hands. You think it is, but it isn't. As you make decisions in this world, God the Spirit is around you and in you and going before you and involved in all of these things that you're deciding as you trust Christ or refuse to trust Him. Your destiny rests with a merciful God who is depicted faithfully in that prodigal or that father of the prodigal in the famous parable in the gospel who loved his son even while his son rebelled and ran away from him. And the father, as far as the father was concerned, he was gone forever. He'd never see him again. And yet he was watching the road. He was watching the road because it says when his son appeared on the horizon and he could recognize the familiarity of the movements and, and, and say, that is my son. The dignified father was running. Israelite fathers did not run. This father was running to grasp his son and welcome him home. He knew when he would return somehow, or at least God does in the place of that father, knows when and how that child, that rebel, is going to return. You know, we we spend our breath harping against the so-called fairness of the doctrine of election. And people think they defeat it with this. Well, I just can't see how God could save one person and not the other. It's not fair, therefore it's wrong. Sorry, it's, the problem is the limitation of your mind and what God has revealed. He hasn't told us how it's fair, but he's told us that that's the way it is. 
And one day we will perhaps understand in ways we do not today. But the stunning question for every Christian is not, why didn't God save A, B, C, or D? The stunning thing is, why would he save anybody? Nobody deserved it. Nobody. And the most amazing question of all is, why did he save me? And if I go through my life asking that question every time I come to worship and I'm saying, oh God, I praise your name, I lift you up, I praise the name of Jesus Christ, why would you put your attention on me? For surely I am the least and the lowest of all that you have ever made. And if we come to him that way, we see the glory of this doctrine of election. It brings us to wonderment, to worship, to humility, and even to service for a God that would come to us in this way. Well, that was the long first point. I promise you, points two and three are much less than that. Secondly, and we'll just be quick about this one, Peter's telling us that eternal election of the Father becomes activated through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. There's so much we could say here, but won't right now. There's more that will come out in the letter of 1 Peter. Sanctify means set apart. You know, my wife and I are pondering what to do as we try to downsize our living with a great big china hutch that's in our dining room full of really good dishes, beautiful Haviland china. We got married, we were penniless, but for some reason we got Haviland. Well, guess what? Uh, It gets used, as my wife will acknowledge, at most once or twice a year, and yet it fills up a great big space in our dining room, and we're saying, why? Why do we need that? It's set apart for such a special use, it's just filling space. Well, to sanctify is to set apart lives for the holy purposes of God. And he shapes those lives and he conforms those lives to the image of Jesus Christ. And we're told here, this happens by the work of the Holy Spirit who in the first place has to awaken. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sin. He has to awaken the dead in order to begin applying salvation to us. And then works that lifelong process of shaping the family traits of Christ in those he has chosen to save. That's all I'm going to say about that one, but that is the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. Thirdly, we come in this second verse to the goal towards which divine election or choosing moves, and that is for, here's what it's for, obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Unusual phrase, in a sense, because the word obedience could have been belief or trust, That's really what it seems to mean here, the obedience of faith that comes to Christ and acknowledges Christ and bows before him. That must happen when the life has been chosen by God and when the Holy Spirit goes to work. That life responds in obedience or faith in Christ. And then this curious phrase that he puts in, and sprinkling by his blood. I don't think there's any other place in the New Testament that that uses that phrase. But there is a place that helps us understand what we think Peter's getting at, and that is in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 24 tells of Moses bringing the law of God that had been given at Sinai, reading it to all the people, 
And as Moses read it, he looked for a response from the people, what we would call a covenant response. Here's the law. Here's what God is saying. What do you people respond when you hear it? And the people responded in Exodus 24. They said, we will do all of this. You know, they were riding a high wave of faith at that moment. And so, having confirmed the covenant, sacrifices were made, oxen were sacrificed, and it says that Moses himself took some of the blood of the sacrifice. Now, surely there were probably thousands gathered there, and he couldn't have reached every one of them, but certainly people who were within a physical reach of him, he spattered the blood of the ox of the sacrifice upon the people. Well, the symbolism of that is, is really kind of clear, isn't it? That the, the sacrifice suffices for and benefits the people once they have come and declared faith. It was a confirmation of the covenant, we would say. The cleansing blood was offered to the people who came in faith. Well, I think that's what Peter's saying here. The blood of Christ stands, of course, for his death. His perfectly righteous death given in place of our perfectly unrighteous lives as a benefit to us. And Peter's saying it's as if you were in that crowd of Israelites being spattered by the blood of the altar because Christ has come for you to receive the benefit of his death and his resurrection. Your faith today sees what Jesus did on the cross as a final result of something begun by the choice of God the Father in eternity past in the timeless depths of the communion of the Father, Son, and Spirit together. It included me. It had my name involved. I can't conceive of this. I'm one of billions of people who have lived. Billions. God knew my name? That's the declaration of the Scripture. He chose in Christ who would belong to him. And that magnificent plan was worked out as the Spirit applies it and the cross and resurrection of Jesus bring it to a historic fulfillment. You know, this is just the gospel, of course. And so many of you say, well, good, I've heard that before. I've believed it, thank God. But it's just possible that there's somebody here who never did hear that before. Or there's somebody hearing this message by various electronic medium, that our website or the radio, and they're hearing this idea that God chose, elected, in the depths of eternity, those who would belong to him. And they're thinking, wow, did that apply to me? And maybe for the first time, they're sensing an interest in this and saying, I want to know that. How would I know if, if that applied to me? And I would say, you'll know. If you have obeyed by faith to trust in Christ, you are sprinkled with the righteousness of his perfect sacrifice that wipes out all the unworthiness that you represent before God without it. And the Holy Spirit is now awakening and drawing you, or you would have no interest in all of this. You would have turned off the radio already. You would have gone to sleep already in this congregation. You would have said, oh, more blah, blah, blah from a preacher. But if there's some keen sense of awakening, could it be that God knew me before all time? 
Could it be that he had this plan in mind for me and I should respond and put my faith in Christ? Listen, if this is the first time that's ever awakened in you, I know what's happening. It is the Holy Spirit of God applying what only he can apply. Because otherwise you are dead in trespasses and sins and you have no ground on which to complain that God is not calling you. What an immense security is offered to every Christian. If I was the one who had to do the election, can you see it? Okay. I'm going to elect myself to belong to God and and declare that I belong to God because I say so. Well, tomorrow I'd probably be in a funk of a bad mood and I'd say, I guess I don't belong to God today because I sure don't feel like a Christian. I belonged to him yesterday, but I don't belong to him today. There are people who actually believe that. Absolute nonsense. The Bible teaches nothing of the kind. The Bible teaches that our assurance rests on God's eternal initiative. It rests on the historic work of Jesus at the cross and in the empty tomb and on the constant keeping power of his Holy Spirit. My saying yes is almost an incidental to all of that, and yet it must happen, of course, as God awakens and draws me to Christ. And folks, I close with this. God still has many chosen ones. Maybe God has some chosen ones among Congolese moving to Lancaster who need to hear the gospel. And we can be God's hands and and voice and equipment to put that gospel in their path, that they would hear it. And they would see the completion in their lives of an eternal transaction that began because God's eternal choosing was to choose Congolese and Chinese and Eskimos and Peruvians and you name it on down the list, folks. Every single tribe and nation has God's chosen ones within it. And he intends that them, they will respond, and they will respond. And it's happening. It's happening quietly every day, every hour, as the good news of Jesus is made known in many lands. Wow. In the light of a transaction like this, along with Peter, I say to you believers, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen. Father, what an amazing thing. Right from the start, coming out of the gate, Peter said, he's writing to the chosen ones, exiles in this world but chosen of God from all eternity. That gives us quite a beginning. We look forward to what you will teach us in the rest of this letter. But thank you for this marvel for us to think upon and pray upon and give thanks for, that you are the planner, you are the upholder, you are the applier of salvation. Thank you for doing what we could not do, for completing what we could not complete, for upholding what we could not uphold for five minutes. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.